The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Carolyn, we've done it. Uh, this this is Dr. Matthew Watto. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Tonight we are talking about acute pain in the hospital and how to use opioid medications safely to treat pain. We have a returning guest, the great Dr. Melissa Weimer, and joining me as co-host tonight is Dr. Carolyn Chan. Carolyn, how are you doing? I'm excellent. You're you're right when you said we did it. We did (laughs) it. We learned all about opioids today. You know, it's harder than you would think to start a show. And uh, that's that's what comes to mind when we start a show. We we did it. Uh, A reminder to the audience that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit through our partnership with VCU Health Continuing Education. And you can claim CME credit at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And since Paul's not here, Carolyn, I'm going to have to fulfill his role here and tell the audience that in case they haven't heard the show before, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And definitely there was a lot of practice changing knowledge being dropped tonight by our wonderful guest. Can you tell the audience a little bit more about her? Absolutely. We have a returning guest today. Dr. Melissa Weimer is an associate professor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine. She is board certified in internal medicine and addiction medicine. She is currently the medical director of the Yale Addiction Medicine Consult Service and associate program director of the Yale Addiction Medicine Fellowship. Dr. Weimer is committed to improving the care of patients with substance use disorders, particularly in the hospital setting, where she also exists extensively in treating complex acute pain. And before we get to the episode, just pointing out that Dr. Weimer did disclose that she has a relevant financial relationship serving as a consultant for PATH CCM. We did talk a little bit about addiction medicine towards the end of the show. I did want to plug a free resource that Dr. Weimer helped create. This is a buprenorphine mini course building on federal prescribing guidance, and it's free through ASAM. It's a one-hour course. We talk a little bit about buprenorphine towards the end of this episode, and I would recommend people check out this mini course by Dr. Weimer, especially if you want to get more comfortable prescribing buprenorphine. So with that, let's get on to the show. Melissa, you've been on the show before. Please remind the audience a one-liner about yourself, and then please tell them like, you know, a hobby or interest outside of medicine. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me back. I guess I didn't do too bad on the first go round. Um, (laughs) So I am a 42-year-old, fierce Tabata, love Tabata, and sprinting, badass physician leader, committed educator, and mother of two. That is that is well crafted. I I like a lot of things about that. Everything about that actually. Thank so you. glad to finally meet you. We were talking uh, before we started recording that I had like a weird power outage for several days, and I I missed you last time around. But uh, I'm glad I'm I'm glad I'm here this time. So usually on the second go around, we ask the we ask you know more of a pick of the week. So do you have any kind of pick of the week? Anything you're enjoying? And as I, as I told you, I've, I've recommended a jump rope before, which is kind of a, you know, an infamous pick of the week. I won't say famous, I'll say infamous. Um, so did you have a pick of the week for the audience? Well, one of my trainees recently reminded me that when I said I liked sprinting, that scared him. So I'm not going <laughs> to say that again, although I did just say that about myself and it is true. But anyway, um, I am enjoying um, the Netflix series, The Chair, with Sandra Oh. And although it's not about medicine, I think there are actually many corollaries to medicine and many of the interesting um, sexist things that we encounter in our work life, unfortunately. 
Good recommendation. I think she's kind of on fire, right? Like, didn't she have a series called Killing Eve in between like Grey's Anatomy and this new one? Like, I don't know that she's been on uh, things that haven't done well. She seems like a badass as well, yes, I would say. She is super badass and I'm a huge fan. She has excellent taste. I'm like, if I want somebody to like make a pick uh, of movies, TV's movies, like I would trust, I would trust Sandra, Sandra Oh. I'd be like, <laughs> please curate my life. <laughs> Um, I think for myself, actually, in terms of I have I have a pick of the week as well that will probably lend into yours as well, Wado. I actually have to say that I've been doing a lot more sitting um, than normal in the setting of pandemic. And I actually got myself a cushion for my chair. And I love it. <laughs> and it has upgraded my life. And I'm so much more comfortable on the bottom, on the back. And I highly recommend it. I was hesitant for a long time, but I'm like, no, no, Carolyn, you can make your life better by getting a padded, comfortable chair to sit on. This is, uh, is this like a, an orthopedic type pillow that you can put on any chair, like uh, your standard rolling desk chair at, at an office? Correct. It's very portable. I could put it, I, I'm, I haven't moved it around, but now that you gave me that suggestion, maybe I will start <laughs> carrying it around, put it in my car and it okay. will just travel with me. Maybe we can track down the, the, what you have. We can, we can put it in the show notes for the audience in case they want to check that out. And Definitely. this is like a kind of a themed pick of the week because Melissa and I are both standing desk enthusiasts and yes. we were geeking out. Like I stand when I'm recording the podcast, I have a standing desk at work. And when I go places where I can't have a standing desk, I often improvise them. So people, uh, send us pictures of your improvised standing desk or just your standing workstation uh, just because it's fun. And I think it's good for... Uh, I think in general, it's good for health to not be sitting so much. We, I think we're all pretty aware of that at this point. And what's interesting is you and I are both standing right now. Yeah, that's right. Super cool. <laughs> now, but not me. I am sitting because I have a comfortable, comfortable pad to sit on. But uh, last time, one of many reasons I was upset to miss you on the show, Melissa, was that you you talked about having a treadmill desk, which is something that I have not done that yet, but... You know, this might push me over the top. Uh, I, I think I need to get a treadmill to go under one of these standing desks that I've been bragging about. It will uh, drastically increase the steps you take. <laughs> That's, yeah. I mean, I, I just like to move around. I, I think uh, maybe I have ankylosing spondylitis, so I got to keep moving. And, and this, this will help me out. So you've inspired me. So thank you. You're welcome. Carolyn, before we get on to the main topic, I think, you know, this is, I know you work together, but I, didn't you, I think you wanted to ask one more question. Yes, Melissa, a uh, question for you. What is the best advice, best advice that you have ever received? And this could be from a learner perspective, as a teacher, just, just anything. Honestly, I, you know, this question always sort of like, I rack my brain for what is, what should I say? Because I've received good advice and bad advice, but I think Honestly, the best advice I've ever received, and I followed it, was to find a spouse who will help you get out of the door in the morning. And I have to tell <laughs> you that I married a man who helps me get out the door in the morning, and it is the best decision I ever made in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so I think thank you, Marty Wunsch. She gave me that advice, and I'm forever grateful. That's, that's good. Yeah. I, I think that, I think that just says like, you know, your partner is making you better. Your partner is supporting you. I think it's, you know, underlying that that seems to be what that implies. So that's good. They're, they're yeah. not just dead weight. You don't want. <laughs> I would buy that on a t-shirt. I think, I think I would just like a nice, simple graphic tee with those words on it. Uh, a partner that's not just dead weight. No, I know you're not talking about what I just said. <laughs> this episode of The Curbsiders is sponsored by the American College of Physicians. It's almost time for National Internal Medicine Day this October 28th. Be sure to get out there and spread your love for internal medicine on social media by tagging at ACP Internus and using the hashtag National Internal Medicine Day. Audience, you know that I love being an internist because I'm an internal medicine nerd. We get to think about things, make up wild differential diagnoses, and we just, you know, we have to think about the whole patient 
It's an awesome job. It's a hard job. And that's why we should celebrate ourselves on National Internal Medicine Day. ACP gives you all sorts of fun ways to express your internal medicine pride. Visit acponline.org forward slash NIMD21. You can download posters and shareable posts for social media. You can update your profile picture with a National Internal Medicine Day frame. So I want you to flood the internet with your internal medicine pride this October 28th. You can recognize a colleague and spread your love for internal medicine. Once again, be sure to tag at ACP Internus and use the hashtag National Internal Medicine Day. Plus visit acponline.org forward slash NIMD21 to start celebrating. That's acponline.org forward slash NIMD21. And remember, it's National Internal Medicine Day this October 28th. See you out there. All right, let's let's get to a case here. Let's talk some pain. Yeah, and I'm excited. We have a great case for you guys today. So our first case from Cashlack Memorial, we have Mr. Poppy Seed. He is a 40-year-old man who has a history of anxiety, fibrostenotic Crohn's disease, who has a history of resection of portions of his small bowel. And he's actually coming to the hospital with four days of abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting. The ED, they do a great job. They get a CT and it shows he has an acute Crohn's flare, but he also has a low-grade clonic obstruction due to a stricture. Right now, he's receiving ID, IV Ketorolac, which he says is not helping his 10 out of 10 pain. He had already received a course of brief IV steroids that also didn't provide any analgesic relief. And on exam, he appears really uncomfortable. He's really diaphoretic. He's kind of moving around and very restless in his bed. So, Melissa, my first question for you is how would you approach just assessing his active acute pain? Yeah, I think this is an important question because I think many times we are afraid of the word um, pain and we're afraid to talk to patients about it, particularly when they're in a lot of pain. And I think we need to learn how to not be so afraid of talking about it and not be afraid of ultimately what may happen, which is we give an opioid. We need to learn how to give opioids safely and not be afraid of them. So I think, you know, for this question, it's important to recognize that hospitals are mandated to have a pain assessment that is done. This is generally part of a policy that each hospital has to develop. Usually they use simple numeric scales or visual analog scales or things like that. Those are really, you know, one piece of information that you're getting, either a number or something they're pointing to to express how, in that point in time, how they're feeling. But really, we know that pain is more complex than that, and it involves their past experience, um, their uh, how we treat it involves their current medical condition or surgical condition. Specifically, this patient is having nausea, vomiting. That really determines how you're going to ultimately treat him. We need to get more comfortable with how we talk to patients about the characteristics of their pain, help me understand what it feels like. And if they're not able to describe that, give them some words or adjectives that they might use, like, is it dull? Is it achy? Is it burning? Does it radiate? Where exactly is it? Many times when I'm assessing a patient, I'll be told, you know, in the consult, it'll say the person's having abdominal pain, and then I'll go to talk to them, and they'll say, it's actually in my foot. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> where the most severe pain is. And so it's just important that you know, what is the exact thing that we need to treat at this time? But the characteristic of the pain really helps you determine your ultimate treatment. Is this nociceptive pain? Is this neuropathic pain? So it's important to know the differences there. We can go into that if that's helpful for people. And certainly anybody who describes a lot of like burning, stinging, radiating, that's potentially more of a neuropathic pain, where nociceptive pain is more of your dull, aching, throbbing type of pain. Yeah. And I usually think of nociceptive pain as being more like from an actual injury or inflammation in some local area versus like neuropathic pain where you might not see anything or there might not be any actual injury. It could be just from nerve damage, like di obviously diabetes, diabetic neuropathy is one of the classic ones that we think about versus right. like an osteoarthritis of the knee would be like a classic nociceptive pain. 
Right. But we sometimes forget visceral pain, which is also a type of nociceptive pain, which for this patient, he may be having more visceral related pain. So you've got your nociceptive, you know, your somatic type of pain, your visceral types of pain, um, somatic meaning the musculoskeletal, joints, muscles, bones. Visceral could be like pancreatitis or myocardial infarction or something like that. So usually when I give a chalk talk on pain, we divide up the different types of pain. And it's interesting to me how many trainees really don't like appreciate these two different types of pain and recognize that that's actually going to help you determine what treatments you're going to offer. Right. And then do you also, I, I guess, I always also think of the acute and chronic uh, nature of it as well. Obviously, this this gentleman here, we're talking about an acute painful event with this. He's got an obstruction. He's he's in the middle of an IBD flare, and he's coming in nauseous and vomiting. So, Carolyn, what are we what are we doing next for this gentleman? So now that we kind of have a better understanding of his pain, which he says really is kind of localizes and it's throbbing, sometimes a little sharp and not too bad, sort of in his right lower quadrant. And clearly, you know, they've tried they've tried IV Ctrolac so far. How would you kind of approach managing his acute pain? Like what sort of medications do you think you would kind of start off for him? So there, there are lots of different options, um, but I think given what we're seeing on our exam of a patient who's having nausea, vomiting, really, really uncomfortable, I think we're, we really want to help quickly stabilize his pain. What we know about poorly treated pain, if it goes untreated and not treated well, it can actually lead to worsening persistent pain or other risk factors. So it is important that we are addressing this sufficiently and as and quickly. That doesn't mean that we want to, you know, go overboard, but we, we want to get him a medication that's going to work quickly in this situation. So I would probably choose something like fentanyl, which is very fast acting. There are some regulations of where you can use that in different hospitals, you know, emergency department versus the floor. If you weren't able to use fentanyl, you could use hydromorphone as a alternative, but that's going to really kind of quickly provide some, you know, fast analgesic benefit to him because you you have tried non-opioids already. So in addition to that, I would probably really want to aggressively treat his nausea and vomiting. And to Matt's point about chronic pain, you know, I, I would be somewhat surprised if this patient had not had an experience in the hospital before or been struggling with pain prior to coming in. So I would want to talk to him in addition to, you know, the things we talked about of the characteristics of his pain, but what has worked for him in the past and take that into account with a non-judgmental focus. If he says hydromorphone is the thing that works best for him, that is okay. And we should just accept that without judgment. There are genetic polymorphisms that we all have, and so some people actually do respond better to hydromorphone than oxycodone or morphine. So keep that in mind. I think we should approach that for all patients, but just keeping in mind that if your patient says hydromorphone really works for me, hydromorphone really works for that patient. But again, to the point of the possibility of chronic pain or severe persistent pain, you would want to talk to the patient about his prior experience. Was he coming in already prescribed opioids prior to admission? That may change how you're addressing the nausea, vomiting, and severe pain. Are we concerned this there could be an element of opioid withdrawal? And then if we think that he's quite anxious or there are other factors going on, psychiatric comorbidities, substance use history, those sorts of things, and we would want to address that really quickly as well. So what I'm hearing is don't be afraid of the specific opioid you're giving. If they need an opioid, they need an opioid. We're going to treat aggressively the nausea and vomiting and anxiety or other symptoms that that may be going along with this. And for this patient, probably he has some chronic component of pain. And you mentioned like asking in a non-judgmental way, which I, I love that. And I, I think so many times these patients will maybe have been on and off opioids. Maybe they're not prescribed them consistently, but they've been on and off opioids. So like sizing up the first dose of these medications, 
is there like a good rule of thumb to go by? Like, let's say the audience hasn't used hydromorphone much or hasn't used fentanyl much. Like what's, what might be a starting dose for someone who's more on the inexperienced side with opioids? So it's going to be different based on their opioid tolerance, which, so it's going to be important to ask him his prior experience with opioids. Um, But for most patients, if we're giving an IV opioid in the hospital in this situation, you know, you can always give more, you can't give less. (laughs) So, um, so I usually start pretty low because we're not trying to introduce harm here. So, you know, a general starting dose for IV uh, fentanyl may be 25 micrograms, and that's kind of safe introductory dose. For hydromorphone, um, hospitals have different ranges that they, they typically recommend, so I'd probably follow your hospital's guidance. But for this patient, I would probably range somewhere between, you know, half a milligram to one milligram of hydromorphone. Right. And let's say we get his nausea and vomiting under control. We give him a bunch of Zofran. He's calmed down. And while he may not be ready to eat, we can start giving him like oral medication safely. Is that something you would consider in this patient? Definitely. If there wasn't a you know contraindication such as an impending surgery or, or something like that, I would want to quickly stabilize him. And then as soon as I could transition him to oral opioids, And the reason is that the oral opioids, again, I'm going to use other things, but, you know, we're kind of focused on opioids right now. The oral opioids are going to provide a longer analgesic benefit. The IV or subcutaneous opioids really have the slowest or sorry, the the most rapid, you know, increase of plasma levels, but they actually go away you know, they don't last as long. So we want them to get an oral opioid, which is going to have a longer duration of analgesia, and that's going to reduce those peaks and valleys of pain that they're having. So I would probably for this patient, in addition to giving him that, you know, first stabilizing IV, which you could use subcutaneous as an alternative, I would probably order oral as well with the hope and goal that he would be able to transition to that once we stabilize him. And when you're starting somebody on oral pain meds, how frequently would you dose it? I see this so often in the hospital, Q4, Q6, Q8, Q12 hours. How do you approach sort of determining the optimal frequency? For acute pain, and particularly somebody who's got really severe pain like this um, gentleman, I would likely dose whatever I'm giving, whether it's hydromorphone or oxycodone, immediate release only. Remember, we're not utilizing extended release formulations in the treatment of acute pain, but the immediate release formulations, generally, they're providing analgesic benefits somewhere between three to four hours. So for him, given the severity of his pain, um, I would probably dose it every three to four hours as needed. And uh, I know we have GI doctors potentially listening or fellows. I know that y'all don't like when we give NSAIDs or opioids to patients with inflammatory bowel disease, um, but we have to do something for them. And and we try these other things, right? We try acetaminophen and maybe Melissa, you can talk about like what else you would do. I, I think part of what we're going to talk about today is an exit strategy, right? So I find often Someone gets a dose of opioids in the ER if they're in really severe pain. A lot of the times it has like a dramatic effect on their pain. But then as they're there for the hospitalization, you know, and they're starting to get more regular doses, it's it's not as dramatic. And I'm immediately thinking like, what else can I do? What is going to be the long-term pain plan for this person? Can you talk about that a little bit? Like what other agents you use and how you talk to them about like, like let's say they're on day five and they're moving through, like this guy's moving through the problem. If he wasn't going to get surgery, but he was going to be discharged home, like how do you talk to them about that opioid that they've been getting in the hospital? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's important that anytime you're putting in that initial prescription or that, you know, initial dose, we're thinking about, okay, what other agents can I use? So we talked about, you know, treating the nausea, vomiting, anxiety, other factors, but For the opioids to be most effective and to kind of set the patient up for success, it's important to try to start it all at the same time if you can. And part of starting it all at the same time is also to provide the patient 
some education to say it's actually, you know, we're going to use an opioid to, to treat your pain, but it's important that we use these other medicines as well because opioids have harms related to them. And we don't want you to be harmed. We don't want you to have big side effects. We don't want you to, you know, have ileus now or an obstruction that worsens because we're giving you too many opioids. So in addition to the opioid, we're going to use generally standing acetaminophen. For this patient, you could use IV acetaminophen, and there's some good data to suggest that that can be effective, though more costly than oral, obviously. NSAIDs, if there's not a contraindication, this patient is receiving both NSAIDs and a steroid. So, you know, I guess I would talk to my GI colleagues to see how they feel about that. Some things you may not think about, that, but that could potentially be helpful for this particular patient would be possibly a clonidine transdermal patch. There's actually some evidence suggesting that in the perioperative period that that can be helpful and can actually potentiate and help some of the perioperative medications or intraoperative medications work. And I think just, just being really open about the fact that, that it's going to be a continual observation and assessment that we're going to need to do for their pain. I think what you're describing and what we typically see in the hospital is the patient who gets started on a pain regimen and it never gets reevaluated or no one ever talks to them about, you know, hey, maybe we should start kind of, you're doing better, things are moving better, like maybe we should start trying to space out your opioids or limit your opioids for these reasons. We don't want you to then develop opioid dependence because you've been on this higher dose of an opioid. And by the way, that's a can be a side effect of taking these medications, unfortunately. So just something that, again, it just involves communication and we have to not be afraid of it. And I think that's <laughs> what I generally see is people don't want to have the conversation because they're kind of afraid of what that conversation will look like if we're taking, you know, if we're not taking, but reducing opioids. And Melissa, too, can you clarify for our guests the difference between opioid dependence versus opioid use disorder? Because I think I think those are two important distinctions that we often don't make clear to our patients. Yes, definitely. Um, so opioid dependence is an unfortunate side effect of utilizing an opioid for a period of time. For some people, opioid dependence can occur in as short a period of time of one week at a sufficient dose. So an example would be if you were taking 30 milligrams of oral oxycodone daily for seven days, it is possible if you attempted to stop that medication now, you don't have any problem. You've just been taking this medication for maybe you had a knee replacement or you had some other painful condition occur. You take that medication every day for seven days, and then at the end of the seven days, you feel great and you stop it suddenly. If you have opioid dependence or that that's developed, you will start to have uh, physical withdrawal symptoms, which generally feel like flu-like symptoms. Uh, you feel anxious. You feel feel irritable. You may have sweating, abdominal cramping, restlessness. Um, your eyes may water. Your nose may run. These are all symptoms that may suggest that you have developed opioid dependence over that period of time. Yeah. So then opioid use disorder, however, would be that you have developed the unfortunate, what I consider the most severe side effect or, or adverse event of taking opioids or being prescribed opioids is that you have developed conditions such that you no longer have control of your use of that medication. You may be compulsively using that medication. You may have developed consequences of your use of that medication, and you may crave that medication. We sometimes call that the four C's. The gold standard diagnosis is the DSM-5, which has 11 criteria, which I'm not going to go through at this time, but I encourage you to seek more information if you want that. But that's really, really different than the patient who's taking their medication as prescribed. Yeah, I, I like the I like using the the four C's or the three C's, like the consequences, cravings. You know, for, instead of going through the whole DSM, I, I find that it's a little bit cumbersome to to do that. But I like talking with patients. Like, let's say this Mr. Poppy Seed, 
he's 40. He's got this chronic condition that's been painful from time to time. And now we have him in the hospital. He's going to be here for a while. He's on opioids. I would start talking with him, as you said, and just like, I, I do this on the regular with patients. I say, listen, like these medications, they're bad for the gut. For IBD specifically, there's more adverse events for these people, even maybe even death more often. And so I just sort of start to try to talk with them. Like, this is why we want to get you off these and like start to just build the case to exit, you know, this medication at some point. So they're not expecting. And I would just encourage the audience to like, especially if someone comes out of ICU or something or is transferred to your service, just look if the, and if you notice their, their opioids are ordered, just look how often they're getting them. Cause sometimes you're pleasantly surprised. It's like, Oh, they got like one dose in the past three days. And you know, clearly this isn't going to be an issue, but sometimes you're like, Oh no, they haven't missed a dose in the past three days and they've been here for like two weeks. So you, you were mentioning this, that it can happen within a week. There was, and I'll, I'll link to this. There was a reporter and I heard this on NPR. He got in a motorcycle accident. He needed surgery. He was on opioids and they discharged him from the hospital. No one had any conversations about it. He had like two weeks worth of medications. When those ran out, he started going through horrible withdrawals. And then like, he just went down this rabbit hole of like, what the heck is happening to me? Like, why did no one talk to this? The surgeon wouldn't refill the meds. His primary was like afraid to prescribe opioids. And like, you don't want to put someone in that position. And uh, we've talked on other shows about how to taper chronic opioids. Um, so we can link to that as well. But please don't do this to people. Uh, please don't do this. So Carolyn, what what's next? Let's say our patient, I'm actually going to continue our case a little bit. So uh, we colorectal surgery is consulted and they actually decide to take the patient to the OR for an X-lap. They end up performing uh, a lysis of a bunch of adhesions. They found a small bowel resection and they create an end ileostomy. And post-op, the patient is saying his pain is like really poorly controlled since they did uh, resect part of a small bowel. Right now, they want to keep him NPO for a bit till he starts sort of passing flatus. And right now, he's getting two milligrams of IV Dilaudid, IV hydromorphone every three hours in addition to his non-opioid adjuncts. So my first question for you, Melissa, is, you know, I've heard before about the use of gabapentin sort of in the setting of a post-op pain and with the idea that maybe it could help patients decrease their opioid use. Do you feel like there's any benefit of adding or trialing gabapentin for this patient? Um, I think, you know, the you're right. The evidence is kind of mixed on this topic. I I do generally use it in my practice. I try to actually start it preoperatively as opposed to postoperatively. But if the patient comes out of the OR and they're really in severe pain and you're trying to add another modality that's not an opioid and you don't, you've kind of exhausted your other options, it's certainly something to add on. And I think that it can have some synergy with the other medications you're using. In the postoperative, immediate postoperative setting, I think there's some other agents that we probably don't use enough, partly because we don't have familiarity with them or comfort with them. One of them um, specifically is IV ketamine. It's an NMDA antagonist. This would be something that we could consider talking to our anesthesiology colleagues about. Um, talk to your hospital. They might have a protocol. I know there, you know, different hospitals have different areas of the hospital, maybe these are restricted to, so keep that in mind. But that's probably an agent, particularly for a patient with high opioid tolerance that we probably do not use enough. And then I think the other thing to consider for this patient would be potentially a PCA. The ketamine stuff, I know everybody is excited about it. I'm excited. The patients are excited. I, I bet Carolyn's excited about it too. What other cool stuff are our anesthesia colleagues potentially using that we can look out for? I think it's probably beyond the scope of what, what we would be prescribing ourselves at this point, but what else is, is out there that we should be aware of? Yeah, I think, I mean, and again, I'm, I'm not an anesthesiologist, but I do a lot of this and work a lot with our anesthesia um, colleagues. So I do um, some of the things I was reading in the 
recent clinical practice guideline that Roger Chow led with um, the American Pain Society, the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, and the American Society of Anesthesiologists. Um, They were mentioning some different guidelines. There were actually 32 guidelines they had. And some of the newer modalities that they are recommending are interoperative strategies such as IV um, dexamethasone, use of regional and neuroxial blocks, use of IV methadone interoperatively, use of IV ketamine interoperatively, IV lidocaine, and IV magnesium all interoperatively. And then there uh, was some evidence that they were mentioning in this um, clinical practice guideline about the use of IV lidocaine specifically for patients with intra-abdominal surgeries, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, this seems, this is like blowing my mind when I was looking, because I, it's, I, I just generally don't, you just don't interact with anesthesiologists that much. So I had no idea that they were doing all this wacky stuff down there. I'm sure they're, they're studying it and they're good doctors and they're not just, you know, but it just, it's just so different from the type of medicine that, uh, you know, that gets practiced by your typical hospitalist on the floors. It's, it's pretty cool to hear that they're, they're doing this kind of stuff. So if you want to sound really smart to your anesthesia colleagues, you can say, hey, can you please tell me about the enhanced recovery after surgery, a.k.a. ARES techniques that you're providing for my patient? <laughs> so <laughs> these are the this is the new thing. I don't know if it's new, but this is what they call the use of the bundled use of evidence based practices to improve surgical outcomes and standardize care so that we're actually sparing opioids and providing multimodal analgesic techniques. Very cool stuff. Our sponsor today is Green Chef. And audience, Paul and I have talked about this. We need to save him from eating, to quote him, hot garbage all the time. And Green Chef is a great way to do that because they are the number one meal kit for eating well. They have high-quality, hand-picked organic veggies and premium proteins so you don't have to worry about where they come from. And maybe you're trying to eat a plant-based diet. Well, they have some great plant-powered meals. Or maybe you're carb-conscious. Well, they got you covered if you're going keto or paleo. Or if you're like my family and you just want to eat some balanced, healthy meals, they've got that covered too. And as I told you, the ingredients are high-quality. What I love about Green Chef is... They have all these prepackaged ingredients. They have great recipes. I've told you before, I don't know how to cook. Paul's a chef, but I'm not a chef. And when I get Green Chef boxes, it makes me look great in front of my wife and my kids, which, you know what, I, I want to feel good about myself and what I'm cooking. So my kids and I, we can make this together. They have very easy to follow instructions. It's really a fun activity for me to do with my seven, eight, ten 10-year-old kids And uh, I would encourage you to try it out with your family. Plus, as I told you, you're going to be eating really high-quality foods. So go to greenchef.com slash curb125 and use the code curb125 to get $125 off, including free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash curb125 and use the code curb125 to get $125 off, including free shipping. As I said, Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. You mentioned, uh, I just wanted to swing back for a second. You mentioned IV acetaminophen. Is that something, like, is that ever going to be cheap enough that we could just prescribe it on the regular? I, I find that I've I've almost never worked anywhere where sometimes I see the surgeons are able to get it for post-op patients, but it doesn't seem like as internists just treating medically sick patients that we can get it. But are you, are you all using it at Cashlack North Northeast? Um, at our Cashlack institution, we are utilizing it in some procedures, um, some of the spinal procedures with patients who have high opioid tolerance. I think, I don't know about cost, it, it probably will remain, remain more expensive than oral acetaminophen, probably for good reason, because it's much, you know, more involved to make it. But um, I think we just need more. I mean, I think there is emerging evidence to suggest that it can be opioid sparing. And hopefully with more of those studies, um, we'll see 
increased use. I think that, you know, it's the same with the IV ketamine at our institution. We really were not using it very much when I first started, where at other institutions, they were using it all the time. So I think it is kind of institution specific what the anesthesia groups are using or or feel comfortable using. And you you also mentioned uh, just because there was it was part of a big long list that their anesthesia can do a lot of sophisticated things with blocks so they can uh, either do regional blocks right or they can do neuraxial anesthesia various types and various agents might be used uh, for those things so that's all really cool stuff that I imagine that the point is to like improve post-op pain so you don't have to use as many other medications particularly opioids yes definitely Carolyn, so what is happening with Mr. Poppy Seed here? So he had his surgery. Uh, how does he fare with, uh, does he, let's say he got some IV ketamine intraoperatively. How do he do afterwards? He did well for a bit with the IV ketamine, but then it started to wear off and um, he's in rough shape. I got to say he's in rough shape. He's not looking too good. He's diaphoretic again, tachycardic. He says that the IV medications, they're really, they're just really, they help, but they're just like running out quite too quickly, even though they're dosed every three hours. And I know, Melissa, you said this is a guy you'd consider a PCA for. So can you tell me some indications and contraindications to PCA use? So going back to that clinical practice guideline, which I think is really an excellent guideline, and it was a multidisciplinary group that created that. So they recommend that when in the postoperative setting, when when parental administration is necessary because of various factors such as uncontrolled pain, ileus, aspiration, that you use an IV PCA and that that could be more effective for patients um, and actually could help them use less opioids over time. And it's it's much more patient-centered because remember, if you're trying to dose an IV as needed opioid every three hours, you can pretty much rest assured that your patient's probably going one to two hours without any analgesic benefit because of the short-acting nature of that IV medication. You could try switching to subcutaneous to see if it might last a little longer, but it's still going to be very short-acting. So if we give the patient the PCA, assuming he's cognitively intact and you know it's safe to do so, there's not other high-risk features such as bad sleep apnea or mor- morbid obesity, um, older age greater than 65 would be a risk factor. Cognitive impairment would be a risk factor. But assuming all those things are safe for this patient, he may really feel that having control of his analgesia is actually better for him. And I think you you made a really interesting point about it can be a more effective mode of analgesia for the right patient. Like something that always confused me, right, is, is basically PCA is I intravenous delivery of the medication, right? So in PCAs, you you can press the button, right? About every six or 10 minutes, depending how the lockout is set. Yet IV medications are dosed like every three, four hours. Can you explain a little bit more kind of about that general, how the pain analgesia relief for PCA is kind of different than the IV boluses that we give? So I think It's important to think about the peaks and valleys of the analgesic benefit and then the rapid offset of the analgesic benefit. So with the PCA, you're just having a much narrower swing of those peaks and valleys. You're having more consistent plasma concentration of the opioid, so it can provide more consistent analgesic benefit. So giving it more frequently in the smaller doses actually helps keep keep analgesia in the range that we want it to with less of the super sedating and then rapidly worsening pain. You're using these with a, a bolus only without a, a basal rate. Is that the Correct, safest? Yes. It seems safer to do it that way. but Generally, it's recommended against giving basal rates unless there's you know some other insinuating factor in my practice and in everything I've read, it generally we recommend against the continuous rates. I may use continuous in a patient who has severe opioid tolerance, but for those patients, I'm probably using really other modalities of treatment to, to try to really effectively get their pain under better control. 
So how how does he do with the the PCA, Carolyn? So we put him on a hydromorphone PCA, and you know he can press the button uh, as often as he needs here. He does a whole lot better. Okay, he's saying, man, I it's not perfect, you know, but the edge is off. I'm starting to function. I'm getting my appetite back. Um, but unfortunately, you know, things happen because it's the hospital. You know, he has a prolonged course. He develops some complications. And eventually, he does end up off the PCA. Uh, he ends up on about 20 milligrams of oxycodone every four hours. It's written as needed, but of course, he's kind of been receiving around-the-clock doses just because he's been sort of slow to improve in relation to his post-op pain. So, of course, he's nearing discharge. You know, we we got a place ready for him tomorrow in STR to go to where he can heal and get recovery and support. Uh, but what what are we going to do? What are we going to do with his payments now that he's essentially on oxycodone, 20 milligrams um, around the clock? How would you approach tapering his payments, Melissa? Well, hopefully, as we discussed before, you've you've had some conversations with him about this already, and you've you've kind of primed him so he's aware and he's hopefully engaged, and you've started to understand what his goals are. And really, when I have that conversation with patients, most of them are very, very clear. Yeah, I don't want to be on these medications for the rest of my life or even for a very long time. And they're very, very aware of what the risks are, particularly somebody who's had, you know, inflammatory bowel disease. They they have had multiple interactions with the healthcare system. So hopefully I've already kind of primed him for that conversation. I would look at his pattern I would look at the other pattern of opioid use. I would look at the other medications he's using. I would ensure that he's not refusing all of his acetaminophen, for instance. We we do see that with some regularity. Yes. Um, if we held the NSAID for some reason or we held the steroid for some reason, I would talk to his clinicians about, you know, the safety of restarting that. I would talk to him about the reasons for why I want to restart that. And then work with him to create a patient-centered taper plan, thinking about how complicated his, his hospitalization has been, but also, you know, what, what is reasonable for this person who is otherwise opioid naive. We don't want to uh, commit to a year of opioids. Um, and so I write out an explicit plan with the patient with their buy-in and say, okay, you know, today we're going to try to limit it to this number of opioids, or we're going to start spacing out the frequency, or we're going to start reducing, maybe you can keep the same frequency, but you're going to try to not take as many of these pills um, per day. And once they know what the plan is, I see most patients do really, really well. Yeah. And I guess depending on how long, like if they've been on this around the clock opioids for under a week, then maybe the taper could be faster than if they've been there for two or three weeks and they've been getting around the clock opioids. In that case, the the taper might have to follow them into the outpatient world, at least in my experience. I Usually you don't keep them there. Is that what you do as well? Right. We would want to, since it sounds like he's going to a short-term rehab, we would potentially want to speak with the short-term rehab physician or care team, ensure that they know what our goals were for the taper plan and that they're willing to continue them. I have seen that go awry, unfortunately, a few too many times. So I do really try to make that connection, though it can be quite challenging. If I'm not able to partner with them. I probably would want to speak with their primary clinician in the outpatient setting to ensure that somebody is able to follow and that and the patient knows that if they run into trouble, they can reach out to their primary person in the outpatient setting because I think sometimes our patients feel quite abandoned in some of these settings if they're not getting the attention, they're struggling with pain. So it, it's important that we you know, they have a, they know who to call if, if things aren't going well. And as someone who has learned to taper opioids from, from Melissa, <laughs> sort of to summarize uh, the approach that I like is one, give the patient an option, you know, say, Hey, we have to move forward. So two options, we can either try to decrease the dose a little bit and see how you do, or we have to try to increase the frequency. 
oftentimes I actually find that patients want to try a little bit lower dose, but not change the frequency. So for this gentleman, he says, you know what, let's just try going down. So we decided to put him on 15 milligrams of oxycodone every four hours as needed. And then after that, we find that that's really kind of the basal rate he needs for analgesia. So I get a little bit worried about tapering him down more because he says it's that just doesn't last as long for him. So then after that, I sort of negotiate and think about a strategy in terms of like taking a dose away each day. So like if he's getting six doses of 15 milligrams a day, the next day I say, let's try five and then let's do four and let's do three, two, one. And actually I kind of let the patient pace it. So I never let them take it like more than four hours together, but sometimes patients are more active, right? When they're at physical therapy and they're doing PT, when they're getting down to that TID or BID dosing, you can say, take it when you need it, right? And oftentimes patients can actually pace themselves pretty well and use it just when they need it. So I found that that's been helpful and has changed my practice in terms of tapering opioids. I'm glad I actually taught you something, Carolyn. (laughs) (laughs) You taught me a lot. All right. So we taper him down using this using that method, and and uh, eventually he'll be discharged. Carolyn is now an okay time. I I wanted to throw a wrench in the works and and change up the case a little bit. And let's say that this patient was somebody who actually had an opioid use disorder and had pretty heavy use of opioids, even injecting uh, fentanyl at times, and then he's coming in with the same acute painful condition. I think sometimes what I unfortunately still see is uh, people are afraid to give opioids to patients because they have an opioid use disorder when, in fact, I, th- I think you have to give them opioids if you're going to work with them at all. You have to satisfy you know, their craving plus treat their acute pain. So, Melissa, how do you approach that for someone with an, a use disorder who's coming in in acute pain? So these are my favorite patients. I I just adore taking care of them, and I see it as a huge opportunity for us to really help them get healthy. So I talk to them as much as I can to, to further evaluate what's going on, give them the diagnosis of opioid use disorder if they don't haven't previously had it, talk to them about medication treatment for opioid use disorder, and really reassure them and help them understand that we get it. We understand that you feel miserable. We understand that you're having pain. We can help with both of those things and they're not mutually exclusive. They can happen together and they can happen very effectively and we have great medications to help you. So we definitely want to offer them, you know, in this setting, if the patient's already receiving opioids and they're having, uh, you know, severe pain, we probably would be recommending methadone as a stabilizing um, medication, though I recognize that that medication is not equally accessible across our nation. So, you know, depending on the setting, it may be something that you utilize in the hospital, but you're not able to continue in the outpatient setting, which is very unfortunate and I wish was different, um, but is a reality, unfortunately. So for those patients, you know, you might use it in the hospital, use methadone in the hospital for stabilization of their opioid use disorder, treatment of their withdrawal and craving, also help with some analgesic benefit, particularly if you dose it more than once a day. And then if this patient were discharging and open to it, we could consider connection to care, transition to buprenorphine, hopefully as a something that's accessible in the community where you practice um, as an alternative. But I think there's been this teaching, or at least when I, when I was in training, there was sort of this idea that if somebody had pain, they were protected from opioid use disorder or it, you know, and so it didn't matter. You could just give opioids and you didn't really have to address the opioid use disorder. I think that that teaching is not accurate or correct. And I think we really do need to stabilize the opioid use disorder, give them highly effective evidence-based medications to do so, and then recognize that we're going to have to use, if we're using opioids, higher doses given their opioid tolerance. And this is where I think people get pretty uncomfortable. And that's why it's helpful when you have an addiction medicine consult service, if you have one in your um, institution, to be able to kind of say, it's okay. <laughs> like we're, we're treating their opioid use disorder. We're trying to address that. We are going to need to utilize higher doses of opioids 
to really help this patient get the analgesic benefit. And we're going to use all the other multimodal treatments because those are also highly effective. And we need to reassure the patient that we're doing all of those things and this is why we're doing them and we're treating this, you know, their pain seriously and we're taking it seriously because I think that's the real concern. They feel that we're not going to take their pain seriously because of their opioid use disorder. When you say giving them, if the person comes in, you're saying methadone because in in many cases, the patient's already received like full agonist opioids in the emergency room. So if you gave them buprenorphine, you know, you'd throw them into withdrawal. So methadone, you don't have that issue. And so you're using that to, to just kind of treat their cravings, satisfy their opioid needs. But then on top of that, you're giving additional, maybe full agonist meds plus the non-opioid pain meds. And then yeah. if someone hasn't received any pain medicine yet before you see them, let's say they just got Ketorolac, then it, buprenorphine, uh, naloxone would still like would still be on the table and you could give that can you talk about how that might be different like if they haven't received opioids yet you you diagnose that they have an opioid use disorder they're coming in they're going to be here for a while with this painful condition how would that approach differ so that approach would differ in the sense that you'd want to start that medication buprenorphine slash naloxone prior to them receiving any other opioids. So it'd probably be something that you're giving pretty quickly. So your emergency department would likely be the place to initiate this. Um, so they would have to be kind of at the ready to do so, or the admitting clinician would have to be ready to do so, because that's kind of our window of opportunity. There are some more advanced techniques that are we're not going to discuss, but um, that could be utilized to initiate at a later point in time. But for the purposes of today's podcast, um, really, you know, initiate it prior to full agonist opioid treatment. It would be important to talk to the patient about their experience with initiating that medication in the unfortunate environment we have where there's high prevalence of fentanyl, at least in the Northeast region of the United States and and really kind of all over the United States. Um, We are seeing worsening precipitated withdrawal even when where, you know, patient appears to be in withdrawal. So you'd want to talk to them about that process before you initiate it. However, Assuming that we safely get the person on buprenorphine, they're doing well, we've treated their opioid use disorder, we can utilize full agonist opioids in addition, concomitantly, with the buprenorphine actually in a very highly effective way, though we want to use high affinity opioids, typically fentanyl or hydromorphone, as the agents we are giving in addition to the buprenorphine. And we would want to ensure that they're continuing that throughout the entire hospital course, including the perioperative setting and continuing all the other multimodal treatments. So you absolutely can use it. It's just by the time that we typically see the patient, it might be a lost opportunity. So you'd want to want to do it as quickly as you could when they get in the door. We'll have to have you back. She was humbly alluding to the fact that she uh, was part of writing up an ingenious protocol for microdosing buprenorphine and and kind of transitioning someone who's on full agonist over to buprenorphine. So we could do that on a future addiction medicine show. But I think that's super cool, and I want to learn more about doing that. But although I am going to revise that statement, sorry, I've I've been chastised by the good Dr. David Filene way too many times. And if he listens to this podcast, he okay. will further chastise me. So <laughs> we probably no, we should. We should be calling it low dose initiation. And that uh, manuscript, which I am honored that you read at all. <laughs> um has an error in its title. It it does refer to microdose induction, but we're now calling it low dose induction. Okay. Well, microdosing sounds cooler, but I, I you know, I'll I have know. to defer to your expertise here. All right. So, yeah, so we we had, can do for someone with opioid use disorder coming in with acute pain, we do have to treat. And I I just wanted to explore a third option and maybe this is getting too far off the rails, but if someone doesn't want bup, 
um, or you're worried about putting them in withdrawal because they're they they've been consistently using fentanyl for a very long time. You don't feel comfortable or have the expertise for methadone. Do you ever just put someone on full agonist, like maybe long acting opioids at like doses that are just kind of your base rate, and then you give them short acting on top of it? I, I've seen that done, but I'm not sure. But I thought it might be helpful to bring up for the audience. Yes, so that can be done in the hospital setting. Um, so we can utilize, for instance, a long acting morphine in the hospital setting. Again, we don't generally for acute pain recommend extended release or long acting medication. So I want to be clear, this is a separate treating the opioid use disorder. So in a patient with acute pain who declines methadone or you don't have access to methadone for some reason or don't feel comfortable using it and they've kind of missed the window for buprenorphine, we could use something such as extended release morphine as an alternative to just kind of stabilize and treat the opiate withdrawal. And then you'd want to use all the things we talked about, the short acting agents for pain. Yeah. So that would just be kind of like, instead of methadone, you're just giving multiple times a day of a long acting agent morphine extended release or oxycodone uh, extended release. Okay. Yes. Just remember we're not, this wouldn't, that wouldn't be something we recommend continuing post-hospitalization. Sure. And we would still recommend that, you know, connection to care for opiate use disorder we don't have the capability of doing that in this country, but Canada does actually allow for the use of long-acting morphine for the treatment or the use in um, opiate use disorder. But in the United States, that is not currently a legal practice. Yeah. Carolyn, outside maybe, of the hospital. Outside of the hospital. So, Carolyn, maybe another a future episode, maybe like a future hospital medicine addiction topic could be using methadone for, uh, in the hospital, you know, and, 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 uh, how to titrate that up and things like that. Cause I think that's something that most people aren't comfortable with, but it would be, we probably should get more people. <laughs> It'd be a good use of the show to get more people comfortable, uh, trying that and working with a pharmacist, uh, locally to do that. Um, oh, I'm very pro talking about methadone anytime, <laughs> anywhere. So Seems like a great next episode. And we probably want to mention that, and I should—I failed to mention previously that if we are using methadone, you know, the first dose of methadone for a patient with tolerance who's coming in using IV fentanyl, we are generally using a first dose of 30 milligrams of methadone, not giving more than 40 milligrams of methadone on the first day. That is a error I see that could be a, a dangerous error. We want to be careful about the dosing of methadone for the treatment of opioid use disorder. And again, if you've got a reliable connection to care, you could consider up titration of that methadone, but you'd want to not go up more than five to 10 milligrams every three to five days. And you'd want to ensure connection to ongoing care uh, mm -hmm. post-hospital. And then again, just to reiterate, if if the person's in the hospital with an acute painful condition, you know, you you may need to give stuff on top of the methadone. Uh, I think we can't say that enough because that is that is more for their cravings. Uh, it may help the pain too, but it's it's for the cravings. Right. I think we I think we discussed this in the pa in the last podcast. Now I can't remember exactly, but. I think we talked about split dosing of methadone, um, which you can do if you're trying to get more analgesic benefit from the methadone. However, you know, some patients feel very strongly that they don't want to split their dose of methadone for that purpose. They really just want to take it once a day. So engage the patient in that conversation, and that can help determine how how to best utilize the methadone for that purpose. But yes, absolutely. You you have to you can use the methadone for their opioid use disorder, but you have to use other agents for their pain. Okay. Carolyn, I I think we probably should wrap up, uh, but but we've we've done we've covered a lot of ground. I'm not sure if there's anything else that you wanted to wanted to point out or are you ready to get to go for take home points? I want to do a one one thing we haven't emphasized. I think is remember every patient who's discharged on opioids should get naloxone. 
every patient who has opioid use disorder should get naloxone. Anybody who's leaving even with a small amount of opioid should get naloxone. Anybody who has a loved one who uses opioid should get naloxone. <laughs> if you're in doubt, prescribe naloxone. Naloxone, which is an antidote to unintentional or intentional opioid overdose, can really save on someone's life, and we don't get it in the hands of folks enough. So the more naloxone out there, the better. All right. And this has been a public service announcement brought to you by Carolyn Chan. Exactly. (laughs) So Melissa, did you want to give us maybe two or three take-home points that you really wanted the audience to remember? I think hopefully, I really hope this came through loud and clear. I know we talked a lot about opioids, but there are so many other medications, non-medications. We actually didn't get to that um, so much, but there are, you know, cognitive techniques, heat, ice, all these other agents that we can use. So just remember that for acute pain, we're really talking about multimodal therapies. Utilize everything that we have in our toolbox to help get patients comfortable and to not be afraid of using opioids, but recognize that, you know, they do have side effects that we have to be aware of and manage. I think utilizing and engaging your anesthesia colleagues. If you have a patient who you predict may have a very challenging intraoperative or postoperative course, it's important to engage them before the surgery so that they're prepared to offer all of the fabulous tools they have in their toolbox to, to get that pain under control. Asking for those, uh, you know, nerve blocks, neuroaxial agents, all these other medications. And we also didn't talk about this, but you can use opioids, but don't rely on tramadol. <laughs> yeah, we'll refer them to our episode where we talk to uh, David Jerlink about that, or, or we'll, we'll link to his tramadol post, which is one of my favorite pieces of medical writing ever. Well, thank you so much. It was great to have you back. And, uh, you know, we definitely need to do more addiction medicine topics on the show. And I think we all agreed on air that methadone is a future topic that we should we should definitely cover um, to get some more expertise out there. All right. So with that, we will fade into the outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Well done. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice a month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest. It's bringing you some of the latest practice-changing knowledge uh, as seen in the literature. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Avi Oglasser, Edison Jang, myself, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on the Instagram, Tima Karganov on the website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I'm Carolyn Chan. And a reminder to the audience that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health Continuing Education. You can go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org to claim credit. And thanks to Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Thank you and good night.